And it is a joy and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you and bring this series that we're in to a close. So we're bringing the Ecclesiastes study that we've been doing. Um, we're in our last week, and so uh, we have an interesting topic, the topic of death. So the, the, the series we've been going through is called The Search for Meaning. And so now we have The Search for Meaning in the Face of Death. And as I observe our culture, I think our culture really does have a problem with death. It's something that, even myself, it's not something fun to talk about. It's not something that we want to dwell on very long. And in fact, we want to use words in place of the word death. We want to say, when someone has died, we want to say, they're no longer with us. Or they've passed away. Because there's a harshness and a, and a finality to death that honestly we just don't like to think about. And we want to push that to the edges out of our mind. And if you walk down the streets of London, you would never know that people are dying and suffering every day. People going on about their lives. We can go days, weeks, even years probably without even really contemplating our own death. And it's okay to talk about when it's out there, that death is out there. Yeah, we all know it's coming. We all know it's there, but it's out there. But the moment we look inwardly, at our own lives, it becomes uncomfortable. And so our text today is taking us there purposefully. I think that, um, you know, as our culture tries to deal with this topic, a lot of times we know we can't remove death, so we try to slow it down. And so if you look on the market, um, all the cosmetic products that are available, they, how many out there are promising something along the lines that it will help you defy age, that it'll turn back the wheels of time, so to speak. And so recently I just did a simple Google search and I found some age-defying serum that is out there. For 185 pounds, you too can have your own bottle. It's called Youth Balm. And uh, this is what it promises to do. It says it will give you a 365-degree facelift. Don't know how that works. It uses the exclusive trademarked BioLog Elastic Complex. Don't know what that is. It'll help firm, lighten, lift, visibly soften lines, reduce wrinkles, boost radiance, and enhance luminosity. So evidently there is a luminosity scale for the face. This is going to put you off the charts of that. But maybe it's not just cosmetics, but maybe it's I want to turn back time with my physique, with my body. So I want to, I want to look like I did when I was 20. So I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to be serious about my health, right? This is a major market, billions of dollars. So Men's Health Magazine has an article, four ways to get shredded after 50. Another one, it's never too late, the aging man's guide to getting jacked. And it's funny because yeah, it, it's, it's so true, right? It's like we live for these things. We think that these things will bring meaning and purpose. And it's being healthy, eating, excuse me, eating well, all those, all those things are, are good. They can improve your quality of life, but they cannot reverse the end. That death is inevitable. So we distract ourselves. There's many other ways. We can get Botox and plastic surgery and take endless amounts of vitamins and hormones and the list goes on. We can eat organic and avoid destructive behaviors, but at the end of the day, we have the same fate, which is death. And that's hard. That's hard to swallow. 
So how do we find meaning with this inevitable reality that we all face? Ecclesiastes, the last two chapters, take us there. And it's going to give us meaning and hope in the face of death. So whether you're coming in here religious or not religious, Christian or not Christian, this is relevant to all of us because we all share the same fate. And we're all confronted with the same questions. So the wise teacher of Ecclesiastes is going to, he tells us many things, but three things that we're going to look at. He tells us to rejoice. He tells us to remember. And then he's going to tell us to revere or fear. Just look at the first one. This is verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11. If you don't have it open, you might want to open there. We're going to be looking at the text quite a bit, but it's page 678 in the Blue Pew Bible. And starting in verse 7, we get this list of things that we are to rejoice in. And it might, might, might seem a little odd that, you know, in the light of death, that's where this text leads us to the failing body, to the point of a, of a funeral here, that he says rejoice. Now, he's, he's not being nihilistic. He's not saying it's all going to end. Just go and soak up all the joy, every ounce of joy you can find in this world because it's all going to end. He already did that, right? Chapter 2, he, he conducted the experiment on pleasure and found it lacking. This king who had the power, the money, the means to test pleasure to its limits, he said it came up short. This is not it. So he's not saying that, but he is saying that we are to enjoy the days that we have as a gift from God. Look at verse 7. It says, light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. Verse 8, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Verse 9, you who are young, be happy while you're young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, whatever your eyes see. 10, so then banish anxiety from your heart, cast off the troubles of your body. So the, t- the teacher is not pretending that death won't happen, but he's reminding us that in the days that we have, we can find joy. We can't enjoy life res- retrospectively when it's over, but we can find joy in it now. So that phrase, light is sweet, verse 7, it says, light is sweet. Light in the Bible is often used as imagery for life. He's saying life is sweet. And sweet, they're actually referring to honey, the idea of honey. Life is honey. And then the opposite would be true. Darkness is often a symbol for death. And he gets into that shortly. He says it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. You have only have to live through one season of winter in London to appreciate this line right here. Now, that was something that our family had to adjust to when we came here because we moved further north. And so the further north you go, the lower the sun actually gets at midday. At midday here, the sun is not up there. It's like right there. And it never really clears the buildings. And so those, one day, those days that you can actually, that it's not cloudy, it's not dark, it's not raining, on those days, which are few, and that sun hits the pavement, you're going to find somebody standing in that exact spot because they found a sweet spot. And they're going to be like this. Ah, warmth on the skin, eyes closed. And it's not odd to witness that. Anywhere else, that might be odd, but it's, it's very normal. You're like, I get it. I wish I had that spot. Because the light is sweet to the eyes. It's a gift from God. It's his common grace. And we have his common grace all throughout creation. It's when it's hot and you don't have air con and you're flat and you open the window and there's a little breeze. You feel the grace of God. 
It's the blooming flowers of spring. It's the smell of fresh flowers. Ecclesiastes often throughout tells us that we are to seek joy in the things we eat, the things we drink, the people we're with, family and friends. These are, and to view them as gifts from God. They are to be enjoyed. So even though death is inevitable, we can still enjoy the gifts that God has given us. So the first thing we see here is that we are to enjoy. But secondly, we are to remember. We're to remember the seriousness of life. So each of those statements about joy and enjoying and rejoicing in life that I read, they all have a counterpart. I don't know if you notice that I cut them off short and went to the next one. Because if you keep reading, they come with a remember section. Verse 8, the second half says, But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. So we see this contrast with the light and the dark. Now he's talking about the dark, this life and death. The days of darkness are coming, and they will be many. There will be difficulties, there will be suffering, and there is the reality of death that we will be facing. And then he says, everything is meaningless. It's key to remember that that translation there, it's not talking about the day actually has no meaning in it. It's talking about that the day is like vapor or smoke. It's, it's something that can't be fully grasped or understood. It's kind of like we're putting together this puzzle of life, but we've got missing pieces and we don't have the box to follow. It's meaningless. How do we comprehend and understand and grasp, take hold of? It'll be difficult. And then in verse 9, the second part, it says, But now, but no, sorry, or remember, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's a sobering thought. It can almost sound like a bit of a threat. Maybe go enjoy life, right? Here, go enjoy these things. But remember, God's going to get you. That's not what that's saying. But it is a sober reminder that we're accountable to God. And in fact, knowing that God is going to bring us into judgment, that he actually cares about the way that we live, brings meaning to life. He didn't just create us and turn us loose and say, go do what you want. But he's deeply invested in his creation, and he's laid out a blueprint for how life can most be enjoyed. And so he tells us to remember. So a question is, why can God bring every deed of ours into judgment? Well, verse 1 of chapter 12, it's because he's the creator. <laughs> remember your creator in the days of your youth. So we're called to remember God as being our creator. And what that does, it actually makes us drop this pretense that we have of self-sufficiency. This thing called life, I've got it. I've got it under control. I can do this. We can't. We're dependent on our very breath from God because he is the creator. He, the teacher here is clear by calling God a creator that we are not just some random assortment of cells put on this, not put on this earth, but somehow formed on this earth. That, that's not us. We're not this random chance, but we've been created by his hands. And then after he tells us to remember that there is a creator, he then goes into this Poetry, this beautiful description, beautiful language of describing something very hard, the breakdown and decay of the body, ending in death. And so let's look at that here, because what, he, what the teacher wants us to do is draw our attention to what is coming. This is a reality for you. 
And in that, we can be instructed and we can gain spiritual wisdom when we come to terms face-to-face with what is true for all of us. So verse 2 of chapter 12, it says, remember the Creator, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. So all these sources of light are coming to darkness. And the clouds return after the rain. It seems a bit opposite, right? Don't the clouds leave after the rain? Here the clouds are returning after the rain. So the days are short. It's coming to an end. So that sickness or that illness or that injury, that time would have one day taken care of, you would have healed, no longer. There's a sense of ominous looming in the air here. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. So we get word pictures for the the failing body. We have the arms, the keepers of the house. We have the strong men, the legs begin to stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few, the teeth. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of the birds but all their songs grow faint. The doors of the streets are closed. As we go older, the outside world becomes less accessible. And the sounds grow faint. Our ears even begin to fail us. This is where we are all headed. Verse 5, when people are afraid of heights, falling is a real fear of the elderly. And the grasshopper, sorry, I skipped one, and the dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms, they turn white, just like the hair turns gray. And there, the grasshopper drags itself along. So the grasshopper, you know, should be something full of life, bounding and jumping. And here it is in the last stage of life, shuffling its feet along. And desires no longer stirred. Then people go to their eternal home. He's not hinting at heaven. He's just saying there is an eternal home. And mourners go about the streets. There's a funeral. Verse 6, he picks it up. He says, remember him, right? Remember the creator. He draws us back to that, that. This picture of death is to point us to God. It's to instruct us on what's important in this life. And so he gives us three pictures here, three different containers, these three different objects that are made to hold water. Water being a symbol of life. And they're crashed. They're broken. They're shattered. Death is final. It says, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the well broken, sorry, the wheel broken at the well, and dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And this is the wise teacher's synopsis, his concluding thought. This is the same thing he opened his thoughts with at the beginning of the book. He says, meaningless, meaningless says the teacher, everything is meaningless, and the teacher rests his case. It's a sobering picture that isn't one that I've necessarily always enjoyed dwelling on this week in preparation for the sermon. It's it's heavy, but it's good. It's to to take our eyes off ourselves and to remember we have a creator. So we see that... He intentionally uses a lot of Genesis language here, bringing us back to the beginning. He talks about a creator. He talks about the dust from which we were formed. He talks about our spirit returning to God. And if we just look briefly at just a couple of those passages there, um, 
It's quite interesting. Chapter 2 of Genesis says that this is how we were made. It says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into it, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We were made by God from the dust and given life and a spirit from the very breath of God. He is our creator. And then in chapter 1, so God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So we're made in God's image. And therefore, when we remember that, we have great value. Every human has dignity and worth. We don't have to run about chasing our identity and pleasure, as we saw at the beginning of the book. Or we don't have to run and chase an identity in our work. Or we don't have to run and chase that identity in, in beauty and health. Or even wisdom and intellect. But he's telling us to remember our creator. That's who we are. You know, just recently, um, our family was brought to this reality where we had to face death. And it's, it's easy not to think about until someone close to you dies. And so Mandy's stepfather passed away at the very end of June, so we flew back to the U.S. for the funeral. And it was a very difficult time. I mean, any funeral is. There was celebration of a life well lived. There was seeing family, so there was joy in it. But sitting in the service, looking forward at the, at the front where there's his picture and the urn with the ashes. And I'm confronted with these thoughts that this is where I am headed, literally returning to dust. This is where I am going. I can't avoid it. I can't just skip ahead and think about what's for lunch or what. I am brought face to face with my reality. And in that moment, I'm caused to ponder. I'm caused, death becomes a teacher. And I have to question, what am I living for? Is my life counting? It makes me want to be a better father and a husband. It makes me want to maximize the days that I have, to enjoy the days while I have them. And it causes me to reflect on God. Where am I going when I die? And there is great comfort. We'll look at some of that in a moment. But death is to be an instructor, a teacher. And that's exactly why in chapter 7, the teacher says that it's the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. Because we can learn much in those moments. It's when we're confronted with death, when we're not at the party, when we're actually in the house of mourning that we ponder the deeper things of life. And we can be instructed by it. So let this passage, chapter 12, this description of death, bring it to our, the forefront of our minds and face. Let us reflect and remember the Creator. Then what are we to do? Well, as the passage goes on, we see that we're to revere God. We're actually fear Him. The author now re-enters the picture. So the wise teacher has closed his case with meaningless meaningless. Now the author steps back in and kind of gives the synopsis. This is what this is all about. This is the point. This is the conclusion of it all. And that's in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. It says, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. 
for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes, as a book, essentially is a call for us to entrust ourselves to God. That He is the only solid truth and reality in this universe. It's a call to entrust ourselves to Him. And He gives us two things. He says, fear God and keep His commandments. To fear God is to be in awe, to have deep reverence for. And it's not the fear of something terrible. It's the fear of something wonderful. So it's hard to even grasp with word pictures what that looks like. But last summer, we took a trip to the uh, Lake District with some friends, and we did some hiking. And when we got to the top of some of these, these peaks, and you turn around and you look out, and the sun is shining down on the valley below, and there's lakes and trees and rolling hills in the distance, you kinda, it's kind of has that effect of like, ah, you're kind of in awe at what you're beholding on a very small scale. When we look to God, we're to be in awe at his beauty, at his wonder, in worship. We're to fear him. We're to fear him because he's our creator, because we owe our very existence to him. We're to fear him because he knows the pattern of all life. He is actually sovereign over all things. We were told this back in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. But God can fathom what he has done from beginning to end. He actually declares the end from the beginning. He is sovereign and he is good. And he acts out of love. We fear God. We entrust ourselves to him. And then secondly, we keep his commandments. These are the things written down for us. These are the instructions on how God says life is best lived. They're actually protections that allow us to enjoy life to the full. And uh, I was thinking about this, like when our kids were younger and we'd take them to the park, we were very thankful for the parks that had a fence around the outside because it prohibited them from running into the street, or prohibited other people from walking in who shouldn't be there, and, or even them just wandering off and us not knowing where they went, Right? That fence, you could say, oh, man, that, why are they putting a fence up? That is just ruining my life. No, it actually allowed our kids to flourish and enjoy within the confines of that fence. And God's commands, a lot of times we, we hear fear God and keep his commands, like that sounds miserable. We need to remember that what we're fearing is something wonderful and that what we're obeying is something for our protection and good and flourishing. So fear God and keep his commands. And then it says, God will bring every deed into judgment. And that's a heavy thought. Before we get there, I was thinking, um, recently we were having a little get-together in our garden at our house. So on Thursdays we do something called Pizza and Discussion with students. And we gather. Um, we just have a small space out back, and we're thankful that we have outdoor space, which is, we're finding is very rare in London. We had a little fire pit. We had pizza and we wanted to have discussion, right? Deeper discussion about life. And so we listened to John Lennon's song, Imagine. If you're familiar with that song, you know that you'll get into the purpose of life pretty quickly. And so we listened to it as a springboard into conversation. And as we're talking about this, we're hearing from our Muslim friends, their perspective on life. We're hearing from our atheist friends, their perspective on life. We're sharing our biblical Christian worldview. And it was really good discussion, and at the end of it, one of those students, as everyone was leaving, one of those came aside, we were having a small talk, and he said, 
it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, that is exactly the words of Ecclesiastes. He says, Chad, you have to convince me that there's something more to life. I don't know about you, but maybe you've had those same thoughts. Even as a Christian, is it, is it meaningless? All of this, the day in and day out, do it again when our end is the same? It's a healthy question to ask. What are your conclusions? I think that what the teacher wants us to come back to, that in the face of death, there is something. And the thing that was missing here in this conversation with this student was fear God and keep his commands. That there's a God behind it all, a creator who desires a relationship with his creation. And so we are to fear God, to keep his commands. And it says that he will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. How will God bring every deed into judgment? How will he do that? Well, as the story of the Bible unfolds, he actually tells us. Acts 17, verse 31. For he has set a day, God has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who is this man? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That is Jesus. Jesus will be the judge. And then we see it again in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Listen to these words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Sounds just like what Ecclesiastes is saying here, that we will be judged for our good and our bad. And the person that we will face at that judgment time is Jesus. This is good news. <laughs> this is actually really good news. Because even in the face of death, we can have hope. Because the one who is going to judge us at the end is the very one who came for us. He's the very one who came down, died for us, Defeating sin, rising from the grave, giving life, promising life, showing that life after death is possible. And so the final say isn't given to death. Death does not have the final say. The one who will judge us is the one who has paid the penalty for us. And that is wonderful news. So what do we do? We, we turn to him. We look to him. We call out to Jesus, the final judge. We entrust ourselves to him because he is good. I'm going to close with the reading of a passage from 1 Corinthians. And it just echoes this thought that death doesn't have the final say, but Jesus does. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you. You are one that is to be feared because you have created us and you are good. God, help us to 
rejoice in the days that we have while we have time and the gifts that you've given us to remember you as our creator and to revere you, to put you in your rightful place, God, that you are the one to be in awe of. So we praise you. We thank you for this good news. In Christ's name, amen.